0: I have a dictionary that I got as like a book award from my high school. Literally, the award is a book, but it's like a nice book and it has like your name, like, you know, like the there's a little like.
1: Oh, like engraved?
0: No, it's like, um, what's it called? Like when you like you open it up and then like on the cover, there's like that.
1: An inscription?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I guess she didn't use that dictionary since you don't know the word inscription.
2: Fair enough. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Starting this week off um, a little aggressively. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. I hope everyone had a good holiday weekend and MLK Junior Day. Because it's a shortened week this week, we're only going to have one podcast episode and that is this episode. So today, Tuesday, the Senate plans to debate the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act. It is the culmination of an effort by Democrats to try to pass voting and election administration legislation in the new year. And it's almost certain to fail. Last week, Democrats across the spectrum, including President Biden, lobbied the Senate to change its filibuster rules so the legislation could pass with a simple majority. But Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have long been opposed to those changes. Today, we're gonna to take a look at why Democrats pushed to do this despite unmoving opposition, what's in the bill, and how voting laws have changed on the state level since 2020. We're also gonna ask whether a new poll deserves all the attention it's been getting. Quinnipiac released a poll last week showing Biden with just a 33% approval rating. So what should we make of outlier polls from high-quality polling firms? Here with me to discuss is politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hey, Alex. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is tech and politics reporter Kaylee Rogers. Hey, Kaylee. Hey,
3: everyone.
2: And senior elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. All right, so let's dive right into this. We've got a lot to cover today. As I mentioned, last week, Quinnipiac released a presidential approval poll showing 33% of Americans approving of the job Biden is doing. That's pretty low. The poll was picked up by outlets all over the place. It was the subject of standalone articles in USA Today, The Hill, Newsweek, Fox, The New York Post, and more. It was featured in broader articles on The New York Times and discussed on cable news, including MSNBC. And of course, it made its rounds on Twitter. Perhaps that low 33% number got a lot of play because it put a numerical point on the idea that last week was a bad week for the president. Longtime listeners of the podcast will probably be able to guess what our panelists think about writing individual articles based on single polls. But it's a new year, so let's have the conversation about how to treat outlier polls. First and foremost, everyone, are the news stories about this poll a good or bad use of polling?
0: (laughs) Bad use of polling.
1: (laughs) I mean, I feel like you kind of uh, took our argument out from under us, but it's pretty obvious how we feel.
3: Bad, definitely
2: bad. So, across the board, bad. Any redeeming qualities to this use of polling?
3: My thinking, again, speaking from my heart, as I have done many times on this podcast, I think the poll itself wasn't necessarily a bad poll. I think the way that it was covered in the media was bad. So, I think there are two different ways of looking at this, but I put the poll itself as a good use of polling.
2: Totally fair. I think for this use of polling example, we'll focus on the media. Then we can also focus on the poll. But so bad across the board from the media, no redeeming qualities. Are we happy that they're talking about polling?
1: (laughs) I don't even know if that's a silver lining in this case. (laughs) Um, You know, when you're putting the results of this polling in a headline, so many people don't even read past the headline. They're going to see that and possibly assume that that is the polling average for Biden's approval rating, which it is not. Um, And think that that's, really where it's at at this point in time, which is concerning.
2: Can we spell out why else this might be a bad use of polling for either recent joiners to the 538 podcast community or longtime listeners who may have forgotten?
0: I think it's just that when you have a robust universe of polls there are going to be some that are right on the money and and close to the average and then there are going to be some that are off to the sides and that's a totally normal byproduct of polling and the method of sampling and stuff like that so as alex said the poll itself isn't necessarily a problem but when you focus on the outliers instead of focusing on the majority of polls that are in this fatter you know lower 40s range that's a problem it wouldn't necessarily be a, a bad media use of polling if they also wrote an article about every other poll that came out that said that his approval rating was 42 percent or 45 percent or 41 percent or whatever it is. But when they give undue attention to this one poll, that's a problem. And and it does kind of create these narratives, as Kaylee said.
1: It is sensationalizing a bit as well. If they had used an outlier poll that found Biden's approval rating was 10 points higher than what we see on the average, that would be equally bad. But I don't think it would get the same kind of coverage because that kind of strays from the narrative that Biden's doing really poorly and nobody likes him, which a low 40s approval rating is also not great. But this just kind of sensationalizes the truth.
2: Yeah. So as you suggested, our approval tracker, which averages all of these polls, shows Biden at about a 42% approval rating, his disapproval rating at about 52%. So that 33% approval diverges significantly, almost 10 points from our average. How do we know when a poll is an outlier as opposed to, say, a leading indicator?
0: Well, often we don't. and we should be aware of the possibility that A poll could be the beginning of a new trend, but of course you don't write an article about a trend based on just one data point. You know, it would be more understandable if the next three polls had come out saying the same thing and then then maybe there's an article there. But I will say that in this case, I think we have a good reason to believe that this is not the start of a new trend and it's just a methodological quirk from Quinnipiac. And that's because their previous poll in November also showed him with a 36% approval rating. So they've kind of consistently been down on Biden's approval. Now, maybe they're right and other pollsters are wrong. That is a possibility But I think that on balance, you have to consider that a less likely possibility than the fact that most other pollsters are getting it wrong. I think that suggests that there's something kind of in the methodology of how Quinnipiac is polling people that gives Biden a lower number, but clearly a change from 36 percent in November to 33 percent. Now, basically, Quinnipiac agrees that Biden's approval is stagnant. It just doesn't agree with where it is. But everybody's going to look at that 33 percent number and be like, oh, man, that's another big drop. But it isn't, even according to Quinnipiac.
2: Although three points is not nothing, right, even according to Quinnipiac.
0: Well, it's it's probably within the margin of error. I actually haven't looked at the Mm. margin of error of this poll.
2: It is. The margin of error is three and a half
0: points. Okay, there you go. Then, no, this is not statistically significant.
2: Nathaniel, you mentioned that it may be a methodological difference. Do we know what that difference might be that's showing Biden at a lower approval rating?
0: So I think one clue is that Quinnipiac has an unusually high number of undecideds. I think it was 13% of undecided voters in that poll. So maybe that suggests that they're not pushing people enough to give their opinion on Biden's approval rating. And one clue, I think, was that this poll had, I think, 75% of Democrats say they were approving of him. So maybe if they pushed those Democrats more, that might increase, and maybe his approval rating among Democrats would increase, which would help his overall numbers. But it could be a case of people who are Biden supporters but are just kind of feeling disappointed, say, in his performance, but kind of one push comes to shove, would say that they approve of him or maybe put a finer point on it, they think that he's doing a better job than another Republican president would be.
3: To Nathaniel's first point, wasn't that kind of what the White House was saying as well? They released some like internal memo and I think Axios got a hold of it. And I think one of their critiques was that Quinnipiac was allowing too many respondents to give a don't know answer when asked about how Biden was doing as president. And that might undercut some soft support for him. But most polls show Biden currently sitting at like mid to low 40%. And I don't think it's entirely surprising to have a poll, um, especially given just what's happened in the last two weeks, showing that, I mean, support for the president has softened overall.
2: Yeah, to add some numbers to that, as you mentioned, Nathaniel, 13% of respondents said that they didn't know in that Quinnipiac poll. In our average, overall, it's 5% of Americans who say they don't know. So a pretty big difference there.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a case to be made for when his disapproval is so much higher than his approval that people who say they don't know are maybe closer on the side of approving of him and don't want to necessarily admit that.
2: That's a weird position to be in though, right? Like that still might be a bad sign.
0: For sure. And obviously this poll, even if, you know, you look at our average Biden's approval rating isn't good, so we shouldn't get carried away here. But I I doubt that it's a true, the 33%. And, And more to the point, maybe when you're talking about an unpopular president, the disapproved number is more important. And it's not like, you hear 33%, and I think a lot of people do assume from that that his disapproval is 67%, but it's not. It was 53% in
1: this poll. If this was a leading indicator rather than an outlier, as Nathaniel mentioned, we would have seen that similar number in November. That should have been kind of predictive, and we maybe would have seen more polls closer to that number in December and throughout January, but we haven't, and instead... Quinnipiac is just, once again, shown the same number.
2: Okay, so as we've all said here, we don't have to focus on just one poll to know that Biden is struggling. So this may be a bad use of polling to all of the different media outlets that wrote single polls off of this or spotlighted it or what have you. But- We're still talking about something that is ultimately real here, that Biden is struggling. And as we mentioned on last week's podcast, only Trump had a lower approval rating at this point in his first term. Do we know from looking at maybe this poll or other issue polling why Biden is struggling so much at this point in his presidency? Is it on certain issues or with certain voters?
1: I did read some polling over the weekend about Americans' approval of the administration's COVID response. They were comparing to a poll from last summer where it was above water and now it's, it's much lower. And I think that's a combination of factors, part of which really is policy related and people being dissatisfied with how the federal government has responded to Omicron and, and continuing problems with the virus. But part of it is also maybe just the existence of Omicron, the existence of the pandemic continuing when I think a lot of people had hoped that we were out of the woods. So it's like Partially the administration's fault, partially just circumstance when it comes to COVID.
3: Yeah, to Kaylee's point, polls show that Americans are just becoming more and more pessimistic about the pandemic ending soon. So I think that's having an effect on Biden's approval. And then you add on top of that things like economic uncertainty, inflation, Congress struggling to pass Build Back Better, voting rights legislation, and a number of other things. I mean, it's not entirely surprising, again, that the public is unhappy at this current moment.
0: Yeah, we actually also have an average of Biden's approval rating specifically on the issue of the pandemic. And uh, last week, it actually went underwater for the very first time. This historically has been a strong issue for him. And in fact, you know, he still has a better approval rating on the pandemic than he does overall, which to Alex's point suggests there are other factors at play. But even on the pandemic right now, he's sitting at 45 percent approval and 48 percent disapproval.
1: I think we're also seeing some erosion of support among Democrats who were very hopeful at the beginning of this administration, you know, having full control of Congress and the White House thinking, okay, we're going to be able to get a lot of stuff done. And then perhaps because there's been so many difficulties passing some of these really big billboard bills, people are starting to get disappointed and feeling like if we can't get stuff passed now, what hope do we have if we lose control of the House or the Senate?
2: Yeah, you bring up a good point, Alex. You also mentioned that maybe people are becoming disillusioned because Congress and Biden have not been able to pass and sign voting rights legislation or what have you. Can we look at the polls and tell how much of Biden's disapproval is based off of people who wouldn't be inclined to support a Democrat maybe anyway versus people who may have supported the president but now don't?
1: Well, we can break it down by party.
2: Yeah,
0: I think it's a mixture of both. I mean, obviously, the vast, vast majority of self-identified Republicans disapprove of Biden, and those people probably are never going to vote for him. But we've also seen erosion among Democrats, as we mentioned earlier, and some other swingier groups that probably voted for Biden in 2020. So, you know, I think it's been a pretty steady decline, I think, among demographic groups and and parties and with a caveat that obviously, as expected, Democrats and Democratic-leaning groups still support him at higher rates than Republicans and Republican-leaning groups.
2: What do we know about the trajectory from here? Is there a reason to expect things to get better or worse?
3: Never say never. Things could get better. But (laughs) maybe the biggest thing we would need to see right now in order for Biden's approval to bounce back is some sort of movement on the pandemic, uh, whether that be lower case numbers, um, maybe some sort of, you know, second economic stimulus relief bill. I don't know if that's even in talks right now in Congress, but I would have to assume that something pandemic related would need to happen in order for Biden's uh, numbers to drastically change.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting, right? Historically, president's approval readings only get worse heading into the midterms. But also historically, you don't have many examples of presidents already being as low as Biden is. And in fact, you, the only example, as you mentioned, Galen is Trump. And Trump actually gained ground between now and the midterms. So it's actually, there's a probably a pretty good case for the fact that it's not necessarily the president's consistently decrease toward the midterms is that they revert to the mean. And so if you look at that Trump example, I think there's some reason to believe that Biden might come back to, you know, at least maybe a high 40s approval rating or something like that. Um, But he certainly shouldn't count on it. You know, sample size of one. There's only been one president who's been down in in such bad territory as Biden is right now. And so we shouldn't assume that that's going to happen again.
2: All right. Well, we will, of course, keep an eye on that here on this podcast, but let's move on and talk about Democrats push to pass new election legislation. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Democrats combined the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act into a single bill that passed the House, and the Senate plans to debate it today. The bill proposes the biggest changes to federal election law since the 1965 Voting Rights Act. It would synchronize many voting access laws across the states, as well as limit gerrymandering and ad campaign finance regulations. As I mentioned at the top, it's very unlikely to pass the Senate because it doesn't have 60 votes and there is not a majority of Democrats open to changing the rules of the filibuster. So let's first dig into what is going on in the Senate and the Democratic Party, and then we'll take a look at what's going on in the states. So I mentioned a couple provisions in this combined bill titled the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act. Nathaniel, you've been reporting on what the different laws under consideration might do. What's the Cliff Notes version? What are Democrats trying to do here?
0: Yeah, so it's kind of hard to give a Cliff Notes version because the bill is, as you mentioned, Galen, so expansive. But basically, it would would do several things. So first, it would, as you mentioned, kind of standardize voting laws throughout the states to be basically as the liberalist possible definition. So it would bring no excuse absentee voting everywhere. You also have mandating same-day voter registration everywhere, mandating online voter registration, mandating automatic voter registration. It would make Election Day a national holiday. It would also restore the right to vote to felons except for those currently serving in prison. So nationally, people on parole or probation or who have finished their sentences would be eligible to vote once again. On the campaign finance front, it would require dark money groups to disclose their donors and It would also require Facebook and Twitter to disclose uh, who's spending money on political ads there. It would also try to tackle election subversion by allowing election officials to sue if they are removed from office without cause, in their opinion. It would increase protections against intimidating election workers. It would increase the penalties for tampering with voting records, kind of along the lines of what we saw in Arizona this year. It would require more preservation of voting records. And it would allow voters to sue if their vote isn't counted, which is kind of like a safeguard against throwing out election results. So that's all the stuff that was in the old Freedom to Vote Act, but this is now, as you mentioned, Galen, the Freedom to Vote John Lewis Act, which is a fusing of the Freedom to Vote Act with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act update. And so this would basically plug the holes in the Voting Rights Act that have arisen as a result of recent Supreme Court decisions. So for example, the Shelby County v. Holder case, which basically gutted the idea of states pre-clearing their election laws with the federal government. So that would bring that back. And it would impose a new formula for deciding which jurisdictions have to do that and when. And then it would also basically undo the decision last year in Brnovich v. Democratic National Committee, which basically made it a lot harder for plaintiffs to prove that racial discrimination had occurred in voting. So this would make it easier to prove those cases, which obviously would help the Democrats and voting rights advocates side of things who are always arguing that laws discriminate against people of color.
2: So, the first idea for legislation like this was passed actually in the House after Democrats took control in 2019, HR 1. How much has this all evolved over the past three years?
0: They've definitely had to scale back their ambitions. So Manchin essentially killed the For the People Act, which listeners might know better as H.R. 1, and kind of turned it into this Freedom to Vote Act, which is a slimmed down version. That said, obviously, it's still quite ambitious, as I mentioned, with all those provisions. But it does take out some of the provisions of the For the People Act. So, for instance, the For the People Act had a whole series of ethics reforms that are no longer in this new bill being considered. It would also make smaller tweaks. So, for instance... The original HR 1 would have basically required an exception to voter ID laws where voters could just sign under penalty of perjury that I am who I say I am. That is no longer the case under the Freedom to Vote Act, although it does standardize the types of IDs that states can take and it includes some non photo IDs. For example, the new bill would also not as tightly restrict purging voter rolls. Which a lot of voting rights groups have identified as a problem, kind of haphazard, or perhaps not so haphazard, and, and more targeted at Democrats or young voters or people of color, purgings of registration rolls, and then also a big public campaign financing plan that was in the original HR1 is now highly scaled back. It's it's actually optional now in the Freedom to Vote Act, which of course you know makes it essentially toothless.
1: Nathaniel, I don't know if you know this, but I seem to recall in H.R. 1 there was a provision that required states to use hand-marked paper ballots as opposed to ballot-marking devices or other kinds of electronics. Is that still in the For the People Act?
0: That is still in there, yes, last I checked.
2: Interesting. So as we mentioned, going back to 2019, the House passed H.R. 1. Last summer, the House passed the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. The legislation has been held up in the Senate throughout 2021 because it doesn't have 60 votes and there isn't majority support to change the filibuster. Alex, you've been doing reporting on the politics behind all of this. Why is Majority Leader Chuck Schumer returning to this issue now?
3: I think there are a couple of arguments here. One could say that Democrats don't have a lot of other big ticket items on their agenda right now, specifically given that Build Back Better Talks are kind of stalled at the moment. Another thing is that I think the timing was pretty opportune for Democrats. You know, we just wrapped up the first anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Martin Luther King Jr. Day was yesterday. And I think this was Democrats' attempt to tap themselves as, you know, we are the pro democracy, pro voting party, Republicans are not. So I think timing again had a big thing to do with it. And I wrote about this in a story that went out last week, but I think. At the end of the day, Democrats didn't have a ton to lose by making a moral push for this, even if they knew it was going to fail. Again, I think we saw this in Biden's speech in Georgia and how forceful Democratic leadership has been over the last couple days or weeks on voting rights. But I think there's this belief that they had to at least try to make an effort here, even if they knew it was going to fail. Why
2: isn't there a supermajority support for this legislation? Why can't Democrats find 10 Republicans to support it? And then on the flip side, why won't Senators Manchin and Cinema support changing the rules of the filibuster?
3: Well, for Manchin and Cinema, we keep on coming back to this idea of bipartisanship. I mean, Cinema gave this speech on the Senate floor where she not only defended the filibuster, but said that she views moderation and bipartisanship versus passing major laws with just one party as a means to an end for a healthier democracy. And Manchin has... Essentially, said the same thing in statements where it's not like they disagree with the substance of what's in the bill. It's just that they don't agree on tweaking Senate procedure to get it passed. And for Republicans, you know, there are a number of reasons why they don't support this bill. But I think one thing that I keep coming back to is this idea of principle. I just can't imagine Republicans supporting a bill that will be perceived as a win for the Democratic Party, especially when you have folks like. Donald Trump still espousing lies about the 2020 election and that it was quote unquote stolen. Obviously, we know that's not the case. We have a number of Republican led legislatures who just finished passing a slew of bills that restrict voting and arguably could make it harder to vote in upcoming elections. So I just don't think it's likely we're going to see um, a lot of Republican support on this bill specifically. It seems like there is some appetite for, you know, reforming the Electoral Count Act, but I don't think there's a big appetite for robust federal voting reform legislation on the Republican side.
2: Yeah, I saw that Senator Susan Collins, along with perhaps some other Senate Republicans, are discussing possible ways to change the Electoral Count Act. They suggested that there were some other changes they were also open to. Is it clear how far they would go? How likely it is that that would actually get 60 votes?
3: So far, everything I've seen on the Electoral Count Act has just been like a group of moderate Republicans kind of getting together and at least discussing uh, potential legislation there. I haven't seen any like real movement there. Mitch McConnell was talking about it at one point. I haven't heard him say a ton about it in at least the last week or so. So I'm not sure if there's actually appetite there. And the big thing for Democrats is that they view these discussions on the Electoral Count Act as a distraction from bigger voting rights reform. So I don't even know if you're gonna get a ton of Democratic support for doing something there, or if maybe they'll support it begrudgingly, but I can't imagine that this will be the end of Democrats' push for voting rights legislation.
1: Yeah, I feel like the discussions around the Electoral Count Act are a totally different beast because what's being considered there would be sort of defanging like the worst case scenarios, not imposing all of these restrictions on states and how they run their elections, which is what the For the People Act would do. And Republicans, for a number of reasons, are against that. As Alex mentioned, many Republican legislatures just passed a bunch of laws that would be in violation of these new rules. And so understandably, they don't want to have the federal government coming in and telling them how to run their elections.
2: Yeah. And just to add some specific, the Electoral Count Act has basically loopholes in it that Trump and his supporters in the Congress tried to use to stop counting the electoral votes in 2020. And so streamlining that and perhaps removing that possibility from the process in the future was the focus there.
1: So that's more about election subversion, where a group or, or something partisan is being done to revert the democratically found election results versus voter rights, which is about expanding access to the polls and making it kind of universal so that it's easier and more accessible to vote.
0: Well it's even more narrow than that, right? It's about election subversion by Congress. Right. It doesn't address things like new laws in states that are allowing nonpartisan election officials to be taken over by more partisan actors. So it really is a very narrow fix. I think Democrats If they say that they're open to that and things kind of shift toward that, it'll be seen as they're giving up on their bigger voting rights push, which is a very high priority for a lot of activists within the party, and and they would be, I think, very upset if Democrats moved on from that without at least trying, as Alex said. But I also think that if they go through the motions here with the filibuster and the voting rights bills die and Democrats are left with literally no option other than reforming the Electoral Count Act, I bet that they will go along with it because it is better than nothing for them. And I do think, that to answer your earlier question, Galen, that that could pass with 60 votes because um, at least 10 Republican senators have at least expressed openness to reforming the Electoral Count Act. Obviously, that's different from a proposal that's down on paper. But clearly, I think there could be bipartisan support for this. But it would only happen after the Meteor bill is dead and buried.
3: But Democrats' whole thing in this voting rights push has been – Look at Republicans. They are not supporting this. Republicans are the big, like, obstructionists to this bill getting passed. But regardless of whatever intraparty stuff is happening with Manchin and Cinema and the filibuster. So if they pass the Electoral Count Act, and that's done in a bipartisan vein, and it's to the public, it just looks like some sort of, like, voting rights reform. I don't know. It seems like their argument there gets a lot less <laughs> clear, because like, how can you say that Republicans are not helping do anything on voting rights if your next move is just to push something forward that does have bipartisan support?
0: Right, Alex. And I think that's a big reason why Democrats aren't going along with it, at least right now, because for the same reason that you said earlier, Republicans don't want to give Democrats a win. Democrats don't want to give Republicans ammunition that that undercuts their own arguments against Republicans and saying that Republicans are not committed to fixing democracy.
1: Also, if, you know, the For the People Act fails as we're expecting and then democrats refuse at that point to even consider reforming the electoral Grant Act, i think that's not going to do them any favors either with their with their voting base who wants to see some
2: kind of progress made so one question i have here alex you mentioned that there's this sort of view amongst democrats at this point of what do we have to lose by making this big push to pass this voting rights legislation In the process of doing so, a lot of Democrats, including moderate Democrats in the Senate, have come out supporting changes to the filibuster. President Biden has come out supporting changes to the filibuster. It looks like after all of this support for changing the filibuster, they may not actually change it. So now they're all on record saying that they support changing the 60 vote threshold. Does that put them in a tricky position in the future when Republicans want to change the filibuster and they're fighting back against Republicans who want to change it to pass their own legislation down the road?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a risk that Democrats are going to have to wrestle with. I mean, if the filibuster doesn't fall here for voting rights, I wager it probably will. If and when Republicans regain the White House and have a majority in both chambers of Congress, I would assume that should that happen, there'd be some GOP opposition to it, similar to what we're seeing now with manchin Cinema on the Democratic side. But if Republicans get a majority in the Senate, you know, 53, 54 votes, I'd bet the filibuster's gone. But I would say the same thing for Democrats. If they had 53, 54, you know, 55, however many members in the Senate, like we wouldn't be having this discussion right now over whether voting rights could pass.
1: Galen, are you asking if there will be consequences to politicians flip-flopping on their position on something? (laughs) Because historically, that hasn't really seemed to be the case. I mean, if you look at Supreme Court nominations in a year of a presidential election, as an example, apparently you can just change your mind on very important issues and there's no consequences.
2: Well, like on one hand, so I understand that Democrats really want to pass this legislation. On the other hand... Part of the conversation of the past, I don't know how many years, has been that Democrats are at a disadvantage in the Senate. So you would think that Republicans would be more likely to have a majority there in the years to come. Wouldn't Democrats want the filibuster in place to kind of ensure that Republicans can't pass the legislation that they want until they reach that higher threshold of 60 votes? Like It seems like if the Senate benefits Republicans, Democrats should be the biggest supporters of the filibuster.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting calculus. You know, I think that there's that argument on one side, but then there's also the argument that Democrats are never, ever, ever going to get 60 senators, whereas that is attainable for Republicans. Hey, they
2: had it as recently as 2009, right? Right,
0: but they had a lot of senators from red states that are not going to be electing Democrats. I guess I shouldn't say literally never, but I would wager it'll be, you know, decades before Mm -hmm. Democrats get 60 seats in the Senate again. And so having the filibuster in place basically ensures that Democrats will not be able to pass their full agenda, whereas for Republicans, there's still a chance that they could. So there there are these arguments kind of on both sides. But yeah, definitely to your point, you know, I think that considering that Democrats stand to lose control of the Senate as soon as later at the end of this year, They may very well be regretting all these statements they're putting on the record right now. And they're going to be putting a lot of faith in people like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski to fill the roles that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are filling right now for Democrats.
2: What do Americans think about all of this? Do Americans know what the filibuster is, by and large, according to the polling? Do they have feelings about its role in American government? And then beyond that, how do Americans feel about the legislation that Democrats are trying to pass by changing the filibuster?
3: I was looking at polling on the filibuster specifically, and I think that most Americans don't have strong opinions about the filibuster. And I think that there's also plenty of evidence suggesting that the filibuster is not a top concern for many Americans. So there was an August Quinnipiac poll. Just 38 percent of Americans said the filibuster was, quote, very important to them. And then there was an April Monmouth survey where just 19 percent of Americans called themselves, quote, very familiar with the filibuster, with 4 and 10 saying that they weren't too familiar with it or hadn't heard of it at all.
1: We need a remake of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington just to refresh everybody's memory.
0: But actually, Kaylee, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, of course, that type of filibuster isn't what the filibuster looks like anymore. It's not the talking filibuster anymore. I guess presumably the remake of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington would just feature, you know, one party consistently blocking cloture votes for a thrilling political drama. but, But yeah.
2: Okay. So when it comes to the filibuster, it sounds like Americans aren't super familiar with it. The polling that I have seen about like, do you support it or not? Seems like roughly a third support and roughly a third don't support. But again, for a public that's not that familiar with it, it's hard to say how much that polling means. But beyond the filibuster itself, what do Americans think about the election legislation?
3: What we did find when we were doing our initial story on why Democrats are bringing this up right now, we found a September data for progress poll. And in that poll, likely voters were given a short description of the Freedom to Vote Act. And 85 percent of Democrats and 54 percent of Republicans said they supported it strongly or somewhat. And then after that, respondents learned more about the various provisions of the bill. And even so, support remained overwhelmingly high with members of both parties.
0: Yeah, I think that these election reforms are generally popular, although as we've discussed with the Build Back Better plan and everything, when you kind of have so many provisions packed into one bill, the individual provisions can be popular, but then kind of the sum total can be less popular because it gets politicized. But I think that the bill overall is popular, but the issue is that it isn't a huge priority for folks. So for instance, Gallup, consistently asks people about what the most important problem facing the country today is. And in their most recent poll, only 1% said elections or election reform. So there's this gap between people supporting it on one hand, but the intensity of that support or kind of the prioritization of that support on the other. And so I do think that a lot of the pressure that is coming from Democrats to pass this bill is coming from activists and more of the the elite class of Democrats. And so in terms of maybe depressing turnout in the midterms, I mean, in general, I think that the midterm cake is is pretty well baked, but I think a lot of these elites are probably going to vote for Democrats no matter what. So I don't think it's so much that they are losing those votes as much as just generating a lot of grumbling and probably negative press that kind of is getting feeded into this idea of Biden's also not doing anything on the economy and he's not doing anything on the coronavirus and that's kind of generally weighing Biden down. But I don't think there are a lot of votes to be lost specifically on the issue of not passing voting rights.
1: Right, by failing on this bill, it contributes to the overall narrative of the Democrats not being able to get anything done. Which could have an impact on on certain voters more so than, yeah, there being some kind of single issue voter who only cares about voting rights and, and that's how they decide.
2: Okay, so it sounds like we've spelled out several reasons why we don't think the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act is going to pass, that the filibuster rules will not be changed and the laws in the states surrounding elections will be in 2022, 2024 what they are now, more or less, you know, without these big changes to how federal elections are conducted. Kaylee, you've been doing a lot of reporting on what kinds of changes have taken place on the state level since 2020. What have we seen?
1: Well, to be fair, I've been building off of reporting that Nathaniel already did, but we have seen, you know, hundreds of voter restriction bills introduced across many states about 50 of them have actually been passed into law. So it's just this really big push coming mostly from Republicans to enact more voter restriction laws. Some of that is kind of expected sort of like a a rolling back of the voter expansion that we saw due to the pandemic. We would expect that some of those expansions that were there just because of this weird scenario with the pandemic that they would want to claw those back to sort of normal. But it goes beyond that. Just the the sheer number of, of bills that have been introduced goes beyond any kind of expectation of just rolling things back. And the type of bills, there's fewer of these, but some of those ones that do things, as Nathaniel mentioned earlier, like putting more control into partisan legislatures over elections than we previously had before, that's kind of new and has a lot of experts really worried.
2: How widespread is that? So, you know, one thing I've encountered over the past year plus of state level election laws being changed or restricted is that we oftentimes hear about the kind of most high profile restrictions. So in Georgia, for example, the legislature proposed banning voting on Sundays, which is, of course, when souls to the polls happens, seems like a pretty clear targeting of the black community's access to the polls. That never became a law. Kind of, it was, you know, left on the cutting room floor along with some other extreme restrictions that were proposed throughout the country. So when it comes to, like, what's the most extreme things that have been proposed and what has actually become law, how much have state-level laws truly changed over the past year plus versus some of these things that were alarming and got a lot of attention but never became law?
1: Right. So, I mean, some of those laws were enacted, some of those really extreme ones, as we saw in Georgia. A lot of the sort of next step back from that were passed into law. Like I said, I I believe we're at 50 now that have been enacted into law. And I think what's interesting is that it's not only these high-profile ones in swing states like Georgia – I recently had a story on the site and I focused on Montana, which was not to pick on Montana for any reason, but in looking at our sort of database of all these laws, I was struck by the fact that Montana had six new voter restriction laws passed into law. Over the last year, even though there was no accusations of fraud happening there, it's a Republican state, everything kind of went the way you would expect it to. And still there was this push to change voter laws and make it more restrictive. And I thought that that was really fascinating that it's happening everywhere and not only in these swing states and high profile areas.
2: And what kind of changes did Montana enact?
1: So in Montana, they had a, a new voter ID law that they've enacted for photo ID. They got rid of same-day registration, which was something that was really popular in Montana, partly because many voters live in very rural areas, so they have to travel kind of far to get to a, a city center or somewhere where they could actually cast their ballot. So rather than having to make two separate trips, one to register and one to vote, they could do it all on the same day, which was convenient. They also cracked down on ballot harvesting. So those were some of the measures that were put into place
2: there. You mentioned that, you know, Montana is a Republican state, even if this were an attempt to try to make it harder for Democrats to vote in elections, it doesn't seem like Montana would be a prime target for doing that because it's not maybe all that contested, at least on the presidential level. But you kind of reported out the process by which support for these restrictions has just become part of kind of like the lifeblood of state level Republican parties over the past year. How did that process happen?
1: Well, a lot of these bills were inspired by the big lie that there was some kind of election fraud. And when I was reporting on Montana, I spoke to a state senator there, Mike Cuff, who Walked me through sort of his thinking behind it, which was he had a lot of constituents who believed the big lie. They thought there was widespread fraud in 2020. And he felt a responsibility, he told me, to try to address that in some way, try to find some nips and tucks that they could make to tighten up election security in their state, to try to appease these voters that were losing faith in democracy, losing faith in elections. And the polling shows that this hasn't really changed anything. And faith in elections, especially among Republican voters, is still very low, especially compared to prior to the 2020 election. And passing all these bills doesn't necessarily seem to be having that effect. And meanwhile, it is restrictive to voters, you know, whether it's restrictive to the point that it should be illegal, that's up to courts to decide. But the fact of the matter is, it's harder to vote if you don't have a photo ID and now you're required to have one, that is harder than if you're not required to have one. That's just the the reality of these these laws and these bills that are being passed. And so you see pushbacks in a state like Montana. There were voters' rights groups for students, for Native Americans, who were saying that this is making it much harder and it's targeting these groups in particular who rely on same-day registration, who rely on not having to have a photo ID because you're a college student, maybe you don't have a driver's license right now. And so there is a lot of pushback from voter rights groups saying that this is prohibitive.
2: So that's what we've seen in Republican states over the past year plus. What's happened in blue states when it comes to changing how elections are administered? Are they copying the federal legislation from Democrats and implementing it in their states?
0: Yeah, a lot of blue or Democratic-controlled states are actually expanding voting access, um, kind of in a mirror image of the way that Republican states are restricting it. So, for instance, you've had a few new states join the the all-mail election club. So this is states now that will proactively mail ballots to every registered voter. So California, Nevada. Washington, D.C. and Vermont, I believe, are the new additions to that list. And then you have lots of blue states doing things like expanding or even creating automatic voter registration. So that's new in Connecticut and Hawaii, I think, among maybe a couple others, Delaware. You have blue states expanding early voting and getting rid of excuse requirements for absentee voting. Although, so this was put on the ballot actually in New York last November, and actually that failed. The legislature has been trying, it's been making statutory changes where it can, and then putting these measures before voters when it has to be a constitutional amendment.
2: Wait, wait. Nathaniel, I want to ask you a question here, because you would have thought that New York voters might have wanted to pass these voting changes. You know, in, in the most recent election we had here in New York State, they asked voters with a ballot question, do you want to allow voting by mail without an excuse? Do you want to be able to register on the same day as you vote? You know, New York State, pretty democratic state. Voters rejected those things, you know, in a sort of direct democracy fashion. What's up with that? Like, are, Do voters actually not like these laws?
0: I think that... The preponderance of evidence still says that voters like to have more options when voting. Um, You know, you see that in poll after poll poll. But I do think that there is reason to believe that there is a – A discrepancy between what people say in in the polls and when they're actually faced with making a change, especially when it would be kind of a proactive constitutional change. You know, I think people are they tend to like the status quo when they're not sure about things. And that can create a no bias in ballot questions like that. In addition, obviously, the 2021 elections were very good for Republicans. There was disproportionately low Democratic turnout. I think that that obviously hurt. And, and specifically with those ballot measures, there was no organized campaign to vote for them, but there were people campaigning to vote against them. And I think that you just see what happens when one side is actually campaigning and the other isn't.
1: Yeah, there was definitely a much more organized no campaign. And where I live, uh, further north in, in Ulster County, there was a lot of, I know signs don't mean anything. It's completely anecdotal. But I did see a lot of no signs for those propositions, in particular, driving around my more rural county in New York.
2: Kaylee, let us say bad use of
1: polling. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even a poll. That's what's so bad about it.
2: <laughs> bad use of anecdata. No, I'm kidding. As we all know, it was an off-off-year environment, so that may affect support. Although, also, sometimes you can be surprised by how people actually feel about these things. I think Most people would assume, given the Democratic Party's position, that there's overwhelming opposition to voter ID when it turns out when you look at polls, like actually a lot of Americans support voter ID, overwhelmingly the majority of Americans support voter ID laws. So it's just, you know, this stuff can be tricky and complicated. And as you all mentioned, it isn't the highest in salience when you look at the polling. And so people may not be super familiar with a lot of the details. In any case, we've laid out what's happening on the state level, what's happening on the federal level. Alex. You said that maybe one of the reasons Democrats were pursuing this right now is because there's not that much kind of left on the docket that they can get done, given that Build Back Better is stalled. Where do Democrats go from here? What's next? They got a year left in charge.
3: Yeah, I mean, like Nathaniel was getting at earlier, I think the Electoral Count Act is a potential next step for Democrats, especially if they try this again. They made this huge push. It fails. They may have an argument for going to the Electoral Count Act after that. I've heard some rumblings that like build back better talks are like kind of happening in the background. I personally was surprised after Biden's speech in Georgia that he wasn't more forceful specifically on mansion and cinema and them being big roadblocks for voting rights legislation passing. But then we were kind of talking about this internally, and maybe the argument there is maybe Biden wants. Manchin and his good graces in case Build Back Better talks come back again. So I could see that, but beyond those two things, you know, midterm season is upon us. I guess the Democrats maybe wanna get back to campaigning, but I can't think of a lot of big ticket items for them to uh, focus on should this next push on voting rights fail.
2: All right, well, we will see what happens. Of course, we are recording this podcast before debate gets underway. Doesn't seem like there's that big of an open question, but who knows? Let's leave it there for now. Thank you, Nathaniel, Alex, and Kaylee.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
2: My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. And Emily Vanesky is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538com You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store. Or tell someone about us. Tell a friend. Tell whoever. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.